the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red blood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website, and your host for the CU at the Game podcast. In just a few short weeks, the concept of a 12-team playoff has gone from a secret management committee working group, made up of Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby, SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, Mountain West Commissioner Craig Thompson, and Notre Dame Athletics Director Jack Swarbrick, to a full-fledged expectation of the college football world. In this episode, Brad and I will discuss the ramifications for such a proposal at the national level from the perspective of the Pac-12 and what it means for the Buff Nation. Then, just for fun, we'll take a look back at what a 12-team playoff could have meant for CU, the possibility of not one, not two, but five national championship runs. In addition to looking back at what might have been, we'll look back at what was. Continuing our stroll down memory lane, we'll take a look back at the CU Nebraska game of 20 seasons ago, 62-36 anyone? As well as the most important game from CU's run to the Pac-12 South title five seasons ago, that being the surprising upset of Oregon behind a freshman quarterback named Steven Montez, and an interception for the ages by Akella Witherspoon, the call for which is one of the lead-ins for this very podcast. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast at your favorite sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and feel free to leave us a review. It's summer. We'll be dissecting starting lineups soon enough. For now, let's enjoy talking a little CU football past and present. Okay, we are coming to you from Highlands Ranch in person. How is Brad? Brad is good. It's always nice to have Stuart in beautiful Colorado. We got to play nine holes this morning, so there are worse things to do. Very good. Well, the talk of the college football world right now is the expansion of the college football playoff from four teams to 12 teams that seems to be working its way through the processes and seems to have, if not universal approval, at least universal acceptance that this is going to happen. Of course, we're talking maybe 2023, maybe not till 2026 with all the TV contracts, but it does seem to have the recommendation of the NCAA that this is going to become a reality. What was your reaction when you heard that it going from four, not to six, not to eight, but to 12? 
I believe I predicted a couple podcasts ago that something like this would happen because, one, there was a perception that the current system was not fair. Two, there was a perception that the current system was dominated by one conference that shall remain unnamed. And three, it became very clear that there were powers that be that were willing to write massive checks to make this happen. Given all three of those incentives, it is not surprising that they went with the biggest logical playoff scenario. Well, if it was just about dollars, why not go to 16 or 24? Or you think that that's the inevitable move or go to 20 like FCS? I think 12 satisfies the big tw- big five. There was not going to be an immediate jump to 16, I don't think. The idea that some teams should get buys was baked into the idea. There may be that somewhere down the road, depending on how television contracts work. But 12 seemed like the most logical and expectable jump. Yeah. So from a contrarian point of view, you've got the idea that if you have this jump to 12, that the regular season is going to be diluted. I don't think you have to look any further than this fall. You've got Oregon playing at Ohio State. You've got UCLA playing against LSU. You've got Washington playing against Michigan. And if anybody wants to notice, Colorado's playing against Texas A&M, but nobody's giving any credence to that game. Pretty much the mindset of the national press would be is if UCLA loses to LSU, if particularly if Oregon loses to Ohio State, if Washington loses to Michigan, by the second week of the season – the Pac-12 will be out of the race for playing in the playoffs. That there's no chance that a Pac-12 team would have enough oomph in its schedule, not enough quality wins to oppress anybody to get back to the point where they would be one of the top four teams in the country. Whereas if you have a 12-team playoff, Oregon loses to Ohio State. They shrug their shoulders and say, well, no, we tried. They can still go back, win the Pac-12, still make it into the playoffs. So does that dilute the importance of September non-conference games to have an expanded college football playoff? No, because you still have to play your way back in. Because, yes, it puts you, that game, whether or not it eliminates you, still puts you behind the eight ball. You still have to win the games. Well, let's I mean, let's say if Oregon loses, wins, Ohio State loses. You think that there is any chance that Ohio State would miss out on a twelve-team playoff? I think that's highly unlikely. Highly unlikely, but, but it depends on how they play against Michigan. It depends on the rest of their season. Is anybody going to say that if Ohio State loses to Oregon but runs the table in the pack in the Big Ten that they wouldn't be considered under any playoff scenario? Yeah. Well, they'd certainly make it if it was twelve, right? And another problem would be is that if you're talking about 12 teams getting in, is there a scenario where Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, from September through November, aren't already assumed to be in the playoff? I mean, if they can stumble against a Michigan, they can stumble against a Florida State, they can stumble against an Iowa State, and they're still going to make it into the playoff anyway. So why would their fans care for the first three months of the season because they're going to run, they're going to have 10, 11 wins anyway. There's no way they're going to be outside the top 12. How boring would it be to be a fan of Alabama where you don't even start thinking about 
football until Thanksgiving. You're telling me that the, the idea is really that the Alabama fans aren't going to take football seriously <laughs> every single week? That I mean, that's a ridiculous scenario. Alabama's going to fill the seats. It's going to get the television ratings. Until they're, you know, three losses into the season, they're not going to be written off. And, I mean, this idea that Alabama or Ohio State or hopefully Oregon or USC are going to take a day off because it doesn't matter for them to get in the big, into the 12-team playoff. I just don't see that that's how college football works. That's not really how college football fans work. We watched Colorado when there was zero chance <laughs> to get in. There are fans of Oklahoma State. There are fans of Kansas, for heaven's sakes, who pay attention to their teams no matter what. I don't see this costing regular season attention. I've never bought that argument. I see no evidence to support it. Very good. Well, it does certainly expand the idea. And kind of going from the national to the Pac-12 level, certainly the idea that an Oregon can lose to an Ohio State and still be, say, a 10-2 and team would not necessarily have a decent shot at the college football playoff with four teams would almost be guaranteed a spot a 12-team playoff. So for a conference that has made the college football playoff twice in the seven years, it would certainly be uh, apparently an optimal idea for the Pac-12 to it. It's not a guarantee that the conference champion would get in, but at least a much better, more likely scenario that a conference champion would get in. Sure. And hopefully the idea is that the occasional Alabama or Ohio State fan will care about what Boise State or whatever Power Five conference team is playing well is doing because they may be an opponent. Yes. Um, right now, I guarantee you, Alabama fans are not spending a lot of their days watching Power Five games. They're certainly not spending any of their time watching Pac-12 games. Yes, <laughs> unless it's late at night and they have absolutely nothing else to do, and they just got home from winning fifty to nothing. And so, yeah, I think the the Pac-12 would now at least yes have a rooting, cheering interest, and in, you say the the rest of the planet would start caring about. Pac-12 late at night. I can certainly see that, um, especially start thinking about, you know, Oregon maybe hosting a Coastal Carolina or something or Cincinnati in the first round of the playoffs. And there might actually be to some advantage to the Pac-12. You know, of course, the system is set up at before buys. Five through eight would host nine through 12, of course, in inverse order, that the, the likelihood in most years, that the Pac-12 would be in that 5-9 to nine range, the Pac-12 champion, hosting a playoff game, which would bring a great deal of excitement because it's going to be actually on-campus sites. And, oh, by the way, it might give the teams a chance to actually win a playoff game, not that it means yeah, they're going to progress on to the Sugar Bowl to win by or lose by 35 points to Oklahoma or Alabama, but at least there is a victory before the loss and the Pac-12 would at least have the opportunity to rack up some positive press along the way. And you're not going to tell me that it wouldn't be exciting to have, you know, Washington State hosting a Cincinnati in Pullman in late December in four-degree weather. I mean, 
I wouldn't want to be at the game, but I'd like to watch that game. Right. And this is not, I mean, yeah, filling a stadium is great, but it's never about that. It's will people watch additional playoff games? The answer is, of course, of course they will. And there will be more money for that. And will they watch that more than they will watch the Jimmy Kimmel L.A. Bowl? Undoubtedly. <laughs> and we could talk about the L.A. Jimmy Kimmel Bowl. But uh, to stay on point, one thing that what did come up that the lame duck Pac-12 commissioner, Larry Scott, why he hasn't slunk off into the night. But the commissioners met and... One thing that Klyavkov and Larry Scott talked about was the fact that under the proposal, the sixth highest ranked conference champions are guaranteed to get in. It doesn't say the top, the power five conference champions are guaranteed to get in. And 2020 was obviously anomalous, but people have gone out of their way to point out that Oregon at four and two last year as a conference champion, was not one of the top six conference champions. So there is the possibility that the Pac-12 could be shut out even of a 12-team playoff. And Larry Scott was saying that they wanted more guarantees or a guarantee that the, I believe we call them the autonomous five conferences, the power five conferences, all of their champions would be guaranteed a slot. Do you have any fear of a Pac-12 conference champion not finding its way into the top 12. Oh, an outside fair, certainly. You know, one can make an argument that if you're not capable of being ranked that high, perhaps you should not be playing in the playoff. But there is such a built-in advantage as a autonomous five conference champion that, yes, could it happen? Perhaps. Will it happen? Unlikely. And they're going to get in so they don't get a host. Maybe that is not necessarily, I mean, let's pretend there's some level of meritocracy to college football. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's, let's bring it back to Colorado. Is there any downside to the University of Colorado in the expansion to a 12-team playoff? I'm, I'm... Puzzled to think about what it is. There's more money for the conference. There's more TV money for the big programs and the autonomous five conferences. You know, you can think of the occasional year it would be. Worst case scenario would be CSU winning the Mountain West and getting in and CU not. But, you know, that's equivalent to the worst case scenario of lightning striking Folsom 17 (laughs) times during the game. So, no, I mean... Again, we have to play our way in, and we have to play our way into that conversation. So I don't see any significant downside, again, because the money is going to be what matters on this. Yeah, and Curtis Snyder, the uh, SID in waiting, working for Dave Platty at the CU Media Relations Office, and congratulations for being a Super 11 winner again. Colorado and Clemson eight times, uh, the only two schools that have been in um, awarded that eight different times um, for the media relations offices. It's a national award, and see so won it again this past year. He put together scenarios for 12-team playoffs going back 50, 60 years and had scenarios where University of Colorado would have won not one, not two, not three, but five 
national championships. Uh, the 71 team finished third. The only time that it's been one, two, three, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Colorado, uh, and from a big eight, three teams from one eight team conference finished one, two, three in the national polls. The of course, 1989 team was undefeated going to the Orange Bowl. The 94 team, which ended up ranked third with the only loss being to Nebraska, Heisman Trophy winner with Rashawn Salam. The 2001 team, and even the 2016 team, you know, I don't think that was a national championship, but there was potential there for five national champions, 71, 89, 90, 94, 2001. If there were a 12-team playoff, do you think Colorado would have more than one national championship? It's fun to think about. They were, well, 2016, no. Yeah. But they were good enough, any of those other games, to have run the tape. I mean, there were teams every bit as good as them every one of those years. But getting in, and, I mean, those were top five teams. Those were teams that were as talented, as good as any, I don't know the 71 team well. Even I don't go that far back. (laughs) But those other teams could play with anybody in the nation. So would we have won? I don't know. Could we have won? Unquestionable. Yeah. I mean, I think you could certainly – Colorado had its shot in 71. You obviously got to play Oklahoma and Nebraska and did not win those games. 89 team had its shot. Number one team ranked, you know, number one going into the Orange Bowl, lost to Notre Dame, the game we attended. The 94 team, you know, only lost to Nebraska, the team that won the national championship. And the 2001 team certainly was within fractions of fractions of decimals of getting into the national championship game. I think they would have gotten pummeled by Miami just as Nebraska got pummeled by Miami in the Rose Bowl in the national championship game. But arguably, the, you know, Colorado would have had a chance to get into those games and if there was any other, if the 89 team and the 94 team won national championship, you can imagine what sort of legacy that would have in terms of future recruiting, in terms of future dollars, in terms of future TV money. It would have certainly enhanced the profile. There's a debate on the uh, uh, podcast of champions, the Pac-12, you know, the UCLA guy and the USC guy from 24-7 Sports is the hosts. And there was a question debating about whether or not UCLA was the second most prominent school, you know, in the conference after USC. And they're talking about different national rankings and recruiting and that, you know, the idea behind USC needs to get back to national prominence and UCLA is in the same boat. And somebody wrote in and said, well, wait a second, you know, they've won a national title in the fifties. They won a Heisman trophy in the sixties and squat for why is UCLA ranked this highly? And, you know, Colorado's one of three schools in the Pac-12 that has a national championship, a Heisman Trophy, and it's just USC, UCLA, and Colorado. Oregon does not have a national title. Washington has a national title, but not a Heisman Trophy. You know, Stanford has Heisman Trophy winners, but not a national title. Cal has national titles, but no Heisman Trophy. You know, it's like the conversation would have definitely been different about the University of Colorado had... Oh, in question. They've been more than one national championship. Well, and even if they'd been in a playoff, the 2001 team was in a bowl game, but didn't play well. Yeah. And, well, you know, the SEC is always fond of the argument that we would have played better in the bowl game and we would have been played better in a playoff rather than the bowl game because we were so disappointed. 
Yes, yes, yes. What's the old joke that uh, Steve Spurrier said about Tennessee that you can't spell citrus without UT? <laughs> like, ooh, ouch. Yeah, that hurts. Yeah. So, you know, I think we will see, and we'll see this 10, 12 years down the road. Does making the playoff mean something different than playing in a bowl game? And I think it will. Yeah. And the idea of having, even in December, a playoff game in Folsom Field, you know, you, you know we would be there. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was 12 degrees or whatever it was, it, we we definitely want to be there for that game. And wouldn't matter who the opponent would be. And the idea of having a Clemson hosting in Oregon or having Stanford travel to play at Wisconsin or something like that. Or, you know, it's something cross-sectional would definitely be something that, People would be interested in it would create a whole lot of generated interest in in December as we move towards that twelve team playoff. Oh, and the uh, you know we all know what happens with picking which is the sixty fifth best team in March, yeah. um, or I guess now the 69th. 69th, uh, yes. Um, the discussion up to who, which twelve teams make it, and then the discussion more importantly about where they're seated. Yes, um, you know we know that there is more PR for that. All those guys who make their living in March doing bracketology will get to do that in December as well. Yeah. No, it, I, I, I think there's momentum that it's going to happen and probably sooner rather than later. Let's move on to other news. In the last podcast, we talked at some length about Sam Neuer leaving the program and what it meant for Sam Neuer and what it meant for the quarterback's room at the University of Colorado. After we posted the podcast, we found out where Sam Neuer was going to land, and it was back in his home state of Oregon playing for the Oregon State Beavers. Thoughts on Mr. Neuer coming to Folsom for homecoming, but his homecoming is going to be Colorado's homecoming as Oregon State comes to play Boulder. You know, it good. It's fine. There's certainly no guarantee that Neuer's going to be the starting quarterback for Oregon State. I was very surprised he caught on there at that late date. One begins to suspect that there was discussion about that, probably with staff approval prior to him leaving, because he always talked about catching on with the Pac-12, which everybody else thought was a bit optimistic. You know, Neuer did what we asked him to do here. Um, he is a competent quarterback. I don't think anybody last year feared CU with Sam Neuer at quarterback. I don't think CU will fear Oregon State with Sam Neuer at quarterback. Um, but if he does well there, that is good for him. Yeah. Other than, you know, November 6th in Boulder, I think a lot of people would be cheering for him. I mean, it, it does seem that he's kind of, kind of stepping into the similar situation. It was the University of Colorado this year that the starting quarterback, Tristan Jebbia, was injured, has a hamstring injury, did not practice, participate in the spring. So there was some issue as to whether or not he'd be ready for the fall. Pretty much the same scenario that the University of Colorado had with Neuer being injured, not playing in his spring practices, not knowing what his availability would be for the fall or, you know, and other younger quarterbacks potentially taking over his spot. So I'm going to miss the, the leadership. I will always remember the thing, you want to take too much out of the Alamo Bowl because it was a, Disaster pretty much from the opening kickoff. But, 
even when he was pulled and Brendan Lewis was playing and driving and having you know driving the team towards touchdowns, Sam Neuer was cheering on his not protege but his underling, his substitute, and was rooting for his. I mean, he was the consummate team player, and you like to see that kind of leadership. The fact that the team bought into him coming in as a converted safety, and now he's a starting quarterback with a new coaching staff that they believed in it, believed in him, and he, you know, came through for the most part. I, I think most people, again, other than when Oregon State takes the field against the Buffs for homecoming on November sixth, uh, will be cheering for Sam Neuer and wish him well. Oh, I think he'll be well welcome back, and you know. You bring up a good point. It's the point that we're always concerned about. With Neuer gone and Landman's status up in the air, we don't know who the team leaders are going to be. But then again, we certainly didn't expect it to be Sam Neuer last fall. Right. Um, so that is one of the challenges to the coaching staff is the quarterback is inherently the leader on the offense. And we know that Durrell and Chavarini will be judging the starter by their credibility. That leadership is one of the definitions of quarterback. And we know that Durrell and Chavarini know that. So we're going to have to figure out, or we, Durrell's going to have to figure out who can lead that team. Um, on the defense, that's more natural evolution. And if Landman doesn't come back, we can hope for Wells, perhaps. Okay. Well, we know that in the upcoming month, we're going to start talking about preparing for fall camp. We're going to do in-depth on the offense and defense. And we're probably going to have to talk about name, image, and likeness because somehow the NCAA woke up and said, oh, you know, July 1st, the world starts coming to an end. We better do something. And... They've had a working group because we know that because Rick George has been on it for over a year and a half, and yet nothing's gone through Congress, nothing's gone through the NCAA. So we'll probably be talking about name, image, and likeness next month. But before we fast forward into the 2021 season and get into fall camp, we got a couple more strolls down memory lane to take. Been going through the anniversary seasons, and we have two pretty significant anniversary Seasons that we haven't talked about in the last podcast. We talked about 1986 and the 2010 Nebraska game. And, of course, we talked about 1991 and the Ice Bowl that you attended. Um, but there are a couple other significant games in Colorado history. Uh, 20 years ago, it's hard to believe now, the last Colorado Conference Championship, <clears throat> 20 years ago now, uh, oh, by the way, Nebraska fans, it's 22 years ago for now Nebraska since they last won a national champ or a conference championship. Forget national championship. Last conference championship was in the 20th century. So 2001 season started off poorly with the loss to Fresno State and didn't look like Colorado was going much of anywhere coming off of a three and eight season. But by the time Nebraska game rolled around Thanksgiving weekend, Colorado is up to 14th in the country, hosting number one in BCS, number two in the AP poll, Nebraska, and one of the game of, of the ages for Colorado fans. For those of you that don't go all the way back to 1986 like Brad and I do, 
many of you look at this as being your favorite CU game of all time. The 62-36 game, Thanksgiving weekend in Boulder. Obviously, we were there. There is a photo of us down on the field with this, you know, the flashing scoreboard in the background. So we have proof positive that we were actually at the game. What, uh, what are your memories? What, to, when you, when somebody says 62, 30, 60, what is the first thing that comes to mind? That Nebraska was never in the game. That after midway through the first quarter, we had seen so many games where CU kind of hung on with Nebraska. Obviously early on, but you knew that you weren't the better team. By halfway through the first quarter, not only did we begin to realize we were the better team, it was sinking into Big Red. <laughs> and you could see their fans start to go, well, huh? And it just, you know, the thing I most remember is the last Nebraska touchdown where you and I looked at each other and gave a golf clap for yes. the poor Nebraska, making it look better. Yes. And it was, uh, it was just unlike any other Nebraska win. There'd been, 2010 was shocking. And then there were close, great games in the 90s. This was not that game. Yeah. This was an overall demolishment that was not nearly as close as that score indicates. Yeah. And the, the pent up frustration for Buff fans going back the previous five seasons, we'd lost Nebraska by a combined total of 15 points. You know, overtime losses, missed field goals, squib kicks that got returned so they could kick the winning field goal. Just a massive amount of pent up frustration. And like you say, the, you know, three and out. I did that interview with Sean Tufts where he, Tackled a Eric Crouch, or maybe it was the halfback, you know, on a pitch out in the first series. And he didn't celebrate as much because he actually thought he might have been called for grabbing the face mask. And he's like, don't want that to happen, but no call. So everybody's happy. Went straight down. I remember the, the very first touch in the Bobby Purify touch was like a 39, 49, 40 yard run where he let up at like the five yard line. And I remember the Brent Musburger call was like, he was looking back to see if there was a, you know, somebody blew, blown the whistle because he was all by himself. He went straight up the middle and there was nobody there. It's like, well, did they call the play? Is nobody following me? And, you know, this cornerback from out of nowhere came and tackled him into the end zone, but he, you know, actually let up about the five yard line. Another, you know, three and out, long pass to Daniel Graham. Get they go for it midfield, turn it over on downs, march right down. The, it was 21 to nothing midway through the first quarter. And, you know, there were moments it's like Nebraska's capable of coming back. That was a solid team. But, and part of it is also there was some, some of our favorite players on there. Chris Brown never quite gets the credit he deserves, but he was as explosive as anybody other than Rashawn Salam, um, or maybe Eric Bieniemy. Daniel Graham, best tight end to ever play at CU. Um, Sean Tufts, who, uh, is not just a great person who we've met through his excellent charity bus for life, but at that time could be a dominant animal in the middle of that defense. Um, Very Nate Landman-like. I mean, extremely. He was not yeah. probably as physically talented as Nate Landman, but he was in the tradition of CU middle linebackers, where if you funneled the ball to him, the tackle got made. <laughs> Yeah, I 
I remember a couple of things before and after. I remember getting, it was predicted that it was going to be terribly cold and chance of rain or snow. It was a late afternoon, which, you know, Thanksgiving weekend means evening because sunsets, you know, at five o'clock mm-hmm. or whatever. And I got in some like rain pants, you know, went up to the CU bookstore or whatever because, you know, we're going to sit there and rain. I didn't want to just have my jeans. I still have that pair, you know, because I usually wouldn't wear that. You know, I say, well, I should play when you play golf in the rain. It's like, well, that's simple. I don't play golf in the rain. <laughs> so why would I need rain pants? But the other part was we went to the game with some friends, Tony and Julie, longtime friends. I stay with them when I'm not staying with you. Yes. And, and getting Julie to a football game. Getting Julie to a football game. That might, that might very well have last. She might not have been to a CU game in the last 20 years, <laughs> but she went to that game. But because since it was a sellout, their, their tickets were, you know, in the bowl and stuff like that. And we went to Uncle Fred, your Uncle Fred's tailgate right across the street there in front of Libby. And we were talking about, okay, well, where do you want to meet up after the game? And the easy answer would have been, well, you know, let's meet up back here at the tailgate. But something in time, I said, let's meet at the 20 yard line. And you've made fun of me in the past on this podcast. And anyone that knows me knows me to be the glass half empty guy. I am never optimistic about a game, certainly not a game against Nebraska, certainly not a game against Nebraska that's number one in the BCS winning, you know, by 30 points and stuff like that. But for some reason, that particular game is like, okay, we've, we haven't beaten Nebraska since 1990. It's been 11 years. We had the one tie in 91, but kept losing. And like you say, we come into that game with five losses in the last five previous five seasons by a total of 15 points. Just complete and utter frustration going into that game. It's like, nope, we're going to freaking win this game. When we win this game, we're going to be down on the field. And I want to meet at the 20-yard line. Student section, right in front of the student section, right meet there at the 20. And after the game was over, and I do remember the golf clap, Eric Crouch, who was the Heisman favorite, went on to win the Heisman Trophy. We were sitting up there. And of course, there are a bunch of Nebraska fans behind us. Go Big Red all game long, even while well, he did quiet down a good bit. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, standing up and doing the golf clap and say, isn't that nice for his mother? Yes. Yeah, so got <laughs> because that's the way Nebraska fans always treated the uh, the opposition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, was oh, their idea oh yes, that, that's very, oh, yeah. Their idea of sportsmanship is when we're ahead by 30 points, we will clap for you. When the game is over, we've won by 30 points. We will pat you on the back and say good effort. Yeah. You know, but and Nebraska fans, when they lose, not as much. <laughs> but we went down the 20. It took us a while to get down there. We were not the only ones with that idea. Yes. And I remember there was some um, security people that were not going to let us down onto the field because they were trying I, to yeah. finally get everybody off the field and get out of there. By the time we actually got down there, we said, please, please. And I think it was actually a cop that took our picture. The four of us were there for the game. And then we skedaddle out of there and they, you know, thanked them for letting us down on the field. And of course, Tony and Jewel were back at the tailgate and we went to the Mexican restaurant that's not there anymore, which is over by the King Supers that had a yeah. tragedy at, um, mm-hmm. on Table Mesa. And we were drinking, they knew the owner, we were drinking shots of tequila. And you know that I don't drink tequila. <laughs> And or shots. Or shots. Or, or do, much. <laughs> or much of anything, anytime, anywhere. But uh, I was drinking shots of tequila that night. So that was a, a a fun, 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 just 
enjoyment. You know, I mean, they came back. It was forty-two thirty at one mm-hmm. point. I mean, they were coming back, and then it's just like, nope. We're just going to keep running up the middle, and Chris Brown's going to keep scoring touchdowns. And it's like, nope, you're not going to not going to do it this time. Watching the black shirts get worn down, get tired. Um, I remember a couple times. I mean, Chris Brown was just three, four, five, fifteen yards out of ten. But there were a couple of times when Pesavino went back to pass. And he set up camp. He started a campfire. He watched television. <laughs> he scrolled through his homework and then threw the ball. Yeah. The black shirts were exhausted. Yeah. And it was something, again, we had never seen before. But yeah. we were leaning, the buffs were leaning on them the whole game. And by the, by the middle of the fourth quarter, Nebraska is done. Yeah. Yeah. And they just didn't have an answer. And the, the holes that were being opened up, some of the field level shots that you guys watch the tape of the game. I still have, I think it's, um, you know, on my Facebook, you know, used to be one of my screenshots or face page or whatever those things are that of Chris Brown. And you see Andre Girard. As good a lineman as we ever had. Walking, watching him. And he's only, you know, maybe a couple of yards past the line of screen, but there are no white shirts. In the screen, it, it's like he's coming at you like Ralphie, and there's nothing in his way. And it was just a, an amazing, fun game. And then to cut, you know, top it off the next week with an upset of Texas, basically at Texas, playing in Dallas mm-hmm. against a team that also could have played for the national championship if they'd beaten us. So it was, you know, pretty much the game for anyone that has been a Buff fan for at least 20 years. If you don't go back to 1986, if you don't go back to the national championship playing in Orange Bowls, probably 62-36 is your, your benchmark for, for favorite games. Well, and it was the most fun. It was fun. You know, the, <laughs> beating Notre Dame came down to a flag on the field. Yes. Um, you know, the, the previous Nebraska wins, 2010, all of those were – Fun in the sense of they were close, tight football games. Whooping Nebraska yeah. is is a joy that's just different. Yes, it was. It had its pleasures. <laughs> um, so we fast forward now for those fans that haven't been fans of CU for twenty years, might be younger. Good for you. We met a young man today that just graduated from undergrad. He's already married, going to law school, and he looks like he's fourteen. So I mean, it's like, damn. Uh, okay, we're old. The 2016 season was another one of those. You know, most people don't remember that. You know, C was three and eight in 2000 and went on then to win the conference championship in 2001. Colorado had been wandering the desert for a decade when the 2016 season came along mm-hmm. and had a group of seniors that basically said, "We're going to freaking refuse to lose." We're, we're tired of it. We're sick of it. You can say some of it was McIntyre. You can certainly say some of it was Jim Levitt and his defensive coordinator abilities. But he also had a secondary where everyone eventually got drafted. It, it was, it was a quality team and the defining game as it, it turned out in historical terms, it wasn't the defining game. Because Oregon had one of its very few losing seasons in 2016, but we didn't know that at the time. Colorado was opening Pac-12 play, having just come off the loss to Michigan and actually having a chance to beat Michigan. Sefo Lufau got hurt. We were leading 14 to nothing early in that game. 
leading in the third quarter when Cepho went out for good. And so here we have a redshirt freshman, Stephen Montez, making his first start on the road against Oregon. No chance to win that game. Then what happened? We got the first view of what Stephen Montez was supposed to be. He was, that was the game where he played over his head. Can we say that? Certainly over what anybody should reasonably have expected. Unconscious. He couldn't make a wrong decision. He would throw, every pass went into narrow windows. If he tucked the ball to run, there was nobody in front of him. He was bigger and stronger and faster than anybody had ever expected to see you quarterback to be literally since Slash. And he's probably bigger than Cordell. Yeah. Um, and it was just amazing. And then, like you said, we had a defense, particularly that defensive backfield, that could make enough plays. I mean, we gave up 38 points. It wasn't a defensive struggle. <laughs> but... You know, they made the plays necessary to hold the game down until the interception with, what, less than a minute left? Yes, yeah, about a minute to go. <laughs> and, and the witherspoon in the corner of the end zone. Mm-hmm. I may have uh, gone kind of crazy <laughs> at that moment. Um, but it was just, that felt more lightning strike than any we'd had in quite some time. Because you just, you know, we love Cepho. He was a great quarterback for CU. But to have Montez come off the bench and play like that and score 41 points against a decent Oregon team, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, the idea that in 120 years at that point of Colorado football, there'd never been a game with a quarterback that threw for 300 yards and ran for 100 yards. Never, ever happened. Nothing with Stewart, nothing with Joel Klatt, nothing, you know, anything like Darian Hagan. Stephen Montez in his first career start on the road in Austin Stadium throws for over 300 yards and rushes for 100 yards, and there were a couple of plays that had instant replay. You know, there was like uh, Shea Fields had one of them. Uh, can't remember who the other one was, but it, they were either they were called incomplete, and then with video review they went back and were complete. So you didn't even get to enjoy the touchdowns. <laughs> You know, when they happened, because it was like, well, no, it was like, oh, well, oh, actually, oh, it's, it, it counts. Okay, we, we scored. So cheering for the TV is never the cheering, most exciting Yeah, thing. cheering for the replay official is not quite as exciting. Uh, the other thing that I'll never forget about that game, because I wasn't in Autzen, we were, you know, and I wasn't actually going to get to see all the game on television, because it was another one of those late afternoon games that dipped into the evening, and we have symphony tickets. And so I was going to the symphony, and the show was about to begin, and it's 41-38, but Oregon is driving. And Oregon is inside the 50, is inside the 20, is inside the 10. And I'm hitting my little phone, hitting refresh, my ESPN play-by-play, hoping, praying, wondering, just resigned to what's going to happen here. It's going to be 45-41. It's going to be a close loss. This is a team that hasn't well, had a winning season in, at that point, nine years. So and, no. and Oregon's got a first and goal. Yeah, first and goal with less than a minute to go. Obviously, a field goal to send in overtime is a given. 
winning touchdown with, you know, 20 seconds to go is likely. And then that call, that's actually one of the, at the opening of the podcast is that, that call, you know, and I, the reason I put it up there instead of something from 6236 or, you know, from the, or the Michigan game from 94 is, you know, the, the, the announcer said the biggest play in Colorado football for years, you know, for Aunt Witherspoon's interception. And he, he was freaking right. And it led to Colorado winning the Pac-12 South, winning 10 games. It was a wonderful game, except for the fact that when it was happening, I was in the, you know, the, the symphony hadn't started yet, but it, everybody was getting, taking their seats. And of course, my lovely spouse was glaring at me for staring at my phone and hitting refresh and refresh and refresh. I finally had to get up and excuse myself and go out in the hallway and call you because it was first and goal, seven yard line, 55 seconds left or whatever it was. And I was getting nothing. <laughs> I was getting nothing. It wasn't refreshing because what happened, you know, with the whole thing with the touchback and everything. And then it started saying something about loss of one yard. It was like there were a couple of kneel downs that see had mm-hmm. to do at the end there. I finally got a hold of you and she's like, okay, just hang on one more, one more kneel down. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell are you talking about? Yes. So truly a, an unforgettable game. And of course there were other games in November. The wins against Utah, against Washington, that were unexpected because Colorado tended to lose games in November, and you know again going on to uh, play for the Pac-12 title and playing in the Alamo Bowl. So um, a memorable game, a memorable season, and it's already five years ago. Yeah, and you know, two coaches ago. <laughs> yes. So uh, we'll leave it at that for now. Again, we're going to start hitting previews for fall camp in July. Probably going to have to talk about name, image, and likeness and branding the buffs and things like that that's going to go on. And hopefully it's not going to be as bad as I fear it's going to be for the University of Colorado when that all hits the fan. But uh we will talk again in the not too distant future. Any final words for the the populace before we sign off? Nope. Enjoy it. It's a lovely day back here in Boulder and uh, excuse me in Highlands Ranch, and we have a tea time for this evening. So life is good. Thanks for listening. In the next few weeks, Brad and I will be looking at the Alston decision from the Supreme Court as well as the latest in the ever-changing landscape of the name, image, and likeness debate. Once the team finds their way back onto the practice field in August, however, we will turn our full attention back to the gridiron and begin our survey of the CU depth chart and take a look at the Buffs' opposition. I hope you'll tune in, and I hope to see you at Folsom Field this fall, which CU recently announced will be at full capacity for the 2021 season. Until then, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs. Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to 
see you at the game at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.